there. I want to talk to you about ducts. Do your ducts seem old-fashioned, out of date? Central Service's new duct designs are now available in hundreds of different colors to suit your individual taste. Hello and welcome to When We Were Young, the podcast where we take a wistful look back at the 80s and 90s and marvel at the days when we didn't know how close we were to end times. <laughs> In every episode, we dig through the wreckage of our misbegotten youths and determine whether these rusted and rotting pop culture artifacts are still double plus good, or if the very idea of them should be deemed a thought crime. Not that it matters anyway, because it's all going to be over soon. I'm Chris, your <laughs> podcast host, most likely to pick a fight with a burly construction worker who refuses to try on my sunglasses. <laughs> I'm Seth Pearson, and as a pacifist with jaw pain, I'm the host most likely to have come here neither to chew bubblegum nor kick ass. <laughs> and I'm Travis Duclo, the guest host most likely to die from too much plastic surgery. <laughs> but you're still with us now, so that's good. For the time being. In this episode, we are looking back at the year 1984, but also looking ahead to the year 1984. <laughs> Since the vision of 1984 George Orwell predicted back in 1949 still feels futuristic, although you could argue that we are inching ever closer. We will be taking a look back at the dark and dystopic science fiction of the 1980s, which was a relatively peaceful and prosperous decade of the 20th century. Asterisk. <laughs> Asterisk the size of America. Yes. <laughs> oh, don't forget about Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> also England. That asterisk is for Seth to come back later and discuss his response to that. Folks, you've missed it in the edit, but I just spent the last 10 minutes <laughs> sighing audibly. <laughs> It was relatively peaceful and prosperous, and yet led to some of the weirdest and bleakest visions of the future pop culture had ever offered. So specifically, we are looking today at Terry Gilliam's Brazil from 1985 and John Carpenter's They Live from 1988. So back in episode 25, we took a look back at Blade Runner, Ridley Scott's sci-fi classic from 1982, which is probably this era's most enduring and influential dystopia. And one of the reasons we brought Travis on for this episode is that his favorite film from last year was Blade Runner 2049. Absolutely. Absolutely. Brilliant work from Dennis Villeneuve. Uh, loved Blade Runner and was really excited to see an actually good, successful sequel that built upon the original, as opposed to just trying to strip it for all it's worth. Yeah, it was not a carbon copy. It was something that actually enhanced the original. Like, you now go back and watch the original. Like, the stuff that you have learned in the second one enhances it, and it, and vice versa. It's just, it's. I can't think of another sequel that uh, did that. I don't know. I'm going to have to rewatch it. Um, <laughs> I thought it had a lot of brilliant threads in it. Um, as all of Villeneuve's movies do. But Are you talking also... about the costume design specifically? Yes, specifically Harrison Ford's gray, hanged, beefy t-shirts <laughs> were fashion icon inspirations to me. I think it is important to note this is our first all-male episode of the podcast. <laughs> the audience demanded it. 
<laughs> we were surprised, frankly. Good, because, you know, white male voices are so underrepresented in film culture. It's we about matter. time that we had our own well, podcast. Finally. You know, I think this podcast has been dying for an MRA voice, really. <laughs> like, like the, you, you've been missing out on that quadrant for a while now. Your MAGA fans have been just yeah. waiting for this. We're going all alphas in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> if I had it to do over again, I probably would have had us do, like, waiting to exhale for this. <laughs> but no. Practical magic. <laughs> dystopias hope floats that's also a dystopia in a way <laughs> so i don't know if you guys have noticed but the 80s have resurfaced in pop culture <laughs> um sir it is my contention they never ended we often talk about pop culture from the 80s on the podcast and we also end up talking a little about pop culture about the 80s with things like stranger things and ready player one that are meant to capture the look and feel of the period if not blatantly rip it off <laughs> opinions may differ so i think it's interesting in this episode to be talking about something that's about the 80s that was written much before the 80s and kind of examine how maybe or maybe it did not end up reflecting the year 1984 and the 80s in general. The idea for this episode of the podcast stems back to the fall of 2016. <laughs> When a certain quote-unquote leader rose to power in the United States, in large part thanks to his authoritarian worldview and strongman rhetoric. And uh, almost immediately, the book 1984 became a bestseller all over again. Nineteen eighty four follows Winston Smith in an imagined future where independent thought is frowned upon by authority, where sexuality outside of reproduction is restricted, where people live in fear of deviation from the norm, and where the government consistently lies to the populace, insisting that blatantly false things are true, such as convincing people that two plus two equals five. This is also the storyline of today's Washington Post. <laughs> Orwell's influence on political allegory and science fiction, and possibly even our real daily lives, can't be underestimated. He created the idea of Big Brother, an entity that is always watching and monitoring citizens, aka Facebook. He imagined doublethink, the idea of holding two contradictory beliefs in one's mind as correct, aka Fox News. He invented the two-minute hate, aka every time I go on Twitter, which I can only do for about two minutes. It's really the ultimate view of a totalitarian nightmare. So did you guys ever read in 1984, either back in school or more recently? 1984 was part of my wedding. It's my, <laughs> wow, it's, that's romantic. It's my Whoa. wife's favorite book. And so we, we had readings from our favorite literature as part of our wedding. And so there's one section of the book <laughs> where they're like in this post-coital bliss of having had sex for pleasure for the first time in their lives. And then they're just laying there and dreaming about how <laughs> wonderful this is. This is right before, of course military troops storm in and arrest them but they have this brief moment of bliss and it's described really beautifully so we had that re that passage read during our wedding and so. then you had people dressed in the stormtrooper outfits like come in <laughs> oh, and yeah. take you away yeah okay. absolutely yeah that that was uh that was our punishment really awesome. yeah we, we had to be reprogrammed after that 
I don't, I don't envy your honeymoon night. But. <laughs> I feel like a reprogramming is part of any good wedding. <laughs> a honeymoon in room 101 cannot be, <laughs> should not be looked down upon. This is why we don't do too much like talking with each other about the podcast, because I had no idea that that was what you were about to say. <laughs> and yet it ended up being like fucking perfect. <laughs> Oh, but yeah, yeah, we, uh, 1984 is something I grew up with, definitely in part of my life. Um, I, I read it in school. It's a cultural touchstone, too. I think it's something that even if you have never read it, have never seen the John Hurt version of it, you know what it's about. You know what it means. You know what someone means when they say Big Brother. You know mm-hmm. what someone means when they say Double Think. Maybe some of the deeper references, like The Two-Minute Hate, you might not get if you haven't read it or you haven't really delved into it or if you haven't read it recently. But I think that it is such a landmark like Catch-22 or even Brave New World to a certain degree of story that really shaped the way that we think about politics and the way we think about the way government should or should not behave. That's amazing. (laughs) I did not read that book at any point in time. Ever? (laughs) Ever. Um, I was given the choice at some point in elementary school of reading either 1984 or Fahrenheit 451, and I read Fahrenheit 451 instead. Um, And it's interesting because they are kind of similar in many ways. I know there are some... I'm sure there are many differences beyond just, like, the narrative. They're probably thematic things. But I would say they're both kind of science fiction dystopias. And I really connected with Fahrenheit 451. And following from that, basically, growing up, I was really into dystopian fiction, sci-fi as well, but also, like, specifically, like, dystopian stories from a pretty young age. And I was a really voracious reader, so there were a lot of, like, sci-fi books, like A Wrinkle in Time and stuff like that that I read. And I was always really into dystopian kind of science fiction movies as well, of course, as we've discussed with Alien and other such things. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, unfortunately, I did not read 1984. I have seen, I think I've seen one of the movie adaptations. There have been like four or five of them, right? Well, there have been many, if you can. Yeah, it depends depends on how loose your definition of adaptation is. I'd say there's really one definitive adaptation. I can't think of any other more recent ones than the 1984 1984. Okay. But there, yes, it has, it feels like it has been adapted many more times. It does. Well, it feels like it has been adapted into our lived reality. (laughs) I also don't feel a huge burning need to read it because I'm like, I I get it. I get it. Yeah. I did. I am one of those people who contributed to it being on the bestseller list just because, you know, it was suddenly, it was always on my radar or something like, oh, I should probably read that. I read Animal Farm back in school Mm -hmm. and liked it. So I I thought I would like 1984. It is kind of one of those things I think that has seeped so much into other pop culture that you don't feel the need to go back to the original. Yeah. But I felt like I should if, you know, I was going to be like commenting on articles that people were (laughs) writing or at least telling them to shut up about this. (laughs) Uh, So I read it and I I think it's a great book. Um, It's it's amazing how (laughs) present. I mean, I think all these ideas are a lot more complicated in real life. It's it's very cut and dry in the book that that it's sort of this evil ish society or very controlling society who is blatantly saying like two plus two equals five. Mm -hmm. And that is so blatant. And yet it's so much what's happening now that it's like it's comforting in a way to like go back to something that was written in 1949 and like realize like this guy was worried about all this already so maybe we're going to be okay 
Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and it's and it's a thing that societies go through. Like it's that's I think that's part of what's so appealing and always has been to me about dystopian stories is that I recognized from a really young age that like the world in this kind of broad general sense was kind of fucked up in a lot of ways. So it gives you the kind of distance of fiction to be able to confront some of the worst things that are happening in this world and a lot of things that are happening like under the banner of your country's flag, Mm -hmm. but not have to be attached to the specific moment. Yeah, well, I think that that's the benefit of fiction in general. Definitely. And um, I often think that movies are a really good method of having political discourse or conversation because we can talk about an imagined circumstance where the only facts that we know are what was presented to us on screen. And we don't have to delve into what is true and what is not, which news source gave us the right information. And we can talk about this specific situation that we only know the set of circumstances from. We have the same two hours to know about it and then debate that. And it puts all lot of the time people on much more equal footing to have a real conversation about challenging identity uh, race or political issues so i think that it often is like you're saying a really good way to get into those challenging political topics that can be very personal at the same time though all of those factors also make it a perfect vehicle for propaganda oh absolutely (laughs) absolutely and actually talking about 1984 talking about Brazil, they live. These are all stories that were written from a very anti-capitalist perspective and were then co-opted by the far right to say that, you know, it was about Jews controlling the world or about how terrible uh, socialism would be if the government were to control every aspect of your life and that the far right have really co-opted a lot of dystopia that is about the dangers of the far right to really turn it into something else. Yeah, I find that conversations about a movie are often so much more productive because you do get out your feelings without, like in real life, yeah, people can bring in like this thing that's totally irrelevant and that, and soon you're having a conversation about a whole different thing. And yeah, I I liked what you said about these stories being contained enough that you can only pull a certain amount of facts in order to support your argument, and then you just sort of have to agree to disagree or whatever. And also, it's a thing that reaches out to people's imaginative side, but without any necessarily partisan filters or, like, tribal identifiers that exist to, like, cut someone out, you know? Um, again, that's kind of what culture does. That's also what storytelling does. But I think, again, like dystopias play with these completely human, globally human fears and pathologies and neuroses. Um, and also, it, it, there's also that kind of um, exponential aspect about it where it's always like Armageddon. It's always the end, the end times or the end of the world or the world literally blowing up. <laughs> um, and that too kind of gives you like permission to imagine something different and like, yeah. What's interesting when you look at a lot of dystopian stories and you know many of the ones we've talked about, Fahrenheit 451, Brave New World, 1984, or some of the films even, Brazil or They Live, they exist in a world where we as a viewer go into it immediately seeing a lot of the problems that are there. But we need our main character to have some sort of reveal, some sort of revelation. And that can be one of putting on a pair of sunglasses, that can be one of actually reading a book, you know, it can be any 
sort of catalyst that allows them to see this world from our perspective. And then that usually will lead to what happens in the rest of the story, the drama of them coming to be at odds with that world. And what's interesting about that to me is that you could make the argument that if they never had that encounter, if they never knew what we knew, then they would be perfectly happy in that world. A few exceptions, of course. I don't think that Roddy Piper is particularly happy or in the first <laughs> act of They Live. But for a lot of these, if they don't have the knowledge of what's outside, they could live a happy life. I would say that there are two basic types of the future. <laughs> <laughs> One being post-apocalyptic wasteland and the other being authoritarian dystopia, like a control versus chaos kind of thing. So 1984 is obviously more about society being over-controlled, and that's the aesthetic that we're kind of focusing on this episode. 1980 saw the release of Mad Max, which is definitely much more the former version, the wasteland. But we're not going to talk about Mad Max because Becky would kill us. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> she would actually physically murder us. I'm going to give you a quick asterisk. Mad Max was 79, but that's, <gasps> that's, uh, that's okay. That's we fair. are going to fire our fact-checker department. <laughs> they have fallen short time yeah. and again. <laughs> We've given them so many opportunities. That's true. 79. It rang in the 80s, and then yeah, uh, yeah. there were totally, two sequels. Totally. It's an 80s movie, for, yes. for sure. But, uh, yeah. Another early 80s film. Was it early 80s? Let's see. Yeah, let's see. <laughs> Escape from New York. Was that 80s? I think that was 80s. It was yeah. 81, according yeah, to my uh, fact checkers. Okay, yeah. IMDb. <laughs> yeah. And that was also directed by John Carpenter, who we discussed very recently and will be discussing again. <laughs> <laughs> the movie stars Kurt Russell. I actually watched it for the first time on 9-11 this year. <laughs> wow. Good timing. Which is a way of celebrating the holiday. Did you just see the cover and you saw, like, Statue of Liberty has been destroyed, good movie to watch on 9-11? No, it was a complete coincidence. Because I, I <laughs> rented it because we were doing this podcast and the Halloween podcast, so it was a good time to catch up with the John oh, Carpenter movies I had not seen. And so I rented it. I knew the basic plot line, but I didn't think very much about it. September 11th comes. I'm not really thinking about it. And I put it in. And all of a sudden, they're like landing on the World Trade Center. There's a plane crash <laughs> in the movie. And I was like, oh, like this is a very awkward time to be watching this movie. Yeah. But anyway, I think that that one kind of straddles the line between both of these kinds of science fiction because it basically has the authoritarian society but then it kind of puts us into the more apocalyptic wasteland basically all of manhattan has become a prison yeah and i would say that the two dystopian models you describe have kind of converged mm -hmm. um, and especially in the modern context where stories sometimes talk about climate change it just brings in the best of all worst possible worlds <laughs> <laughs> well it also i mean as you're talking about 9-11 9-11 was a catalyst for a lot of stuff like the Patriot Act, which kind of leads us into 1984. Yes. yes. And at the same time is a catalyst for the idea of terrorists could be anyone. We could be at war with anyone at any time, which is kind of the Oceania. Yeah, yeah. Oceania is at war with East Asia or Eurasia, depending on how the government feels at that particular day. So 1982 was the release of Blade Runner, which we have talked about on the podcast, directed by Ridley Scott. One of my favorite conversations on this podcast, is a lot like the one we've already been having in this one, <laughs> was about how dystopias that we saw as kids may or may not have shaped our optimism or lack thereof about our own future, because this is the era that we were growing up in the 80s. And although I was not seeing a lot of these movies, I think we were kind of aware of the overall attitude that pop culture was taking toward the future, which was not very bright. Sure. I mean, it influenced animation. It influenced uh, anything that we were exposed to, whether or not we were watching these actual movies. 
Yeah, definitely. Like, even the Don Bluth stuff that we talked about in an episode, too, feels like kind of a, an extension of this dystopic view. No, it really does. Even the more kid-oriented programming we've addressed on this <laughs> podcast has this flair for the apocalyptic at one point or another. As we make more and more episodes, I really have, like, internalized the extent to which I internalize, like, a really apocalyptic view of the future as a concept. Not the only, but most of the visions of the future we take in, and especially that get, like, a ton of money to get made and make a ton of money, are just extremely apocalyptic. And I think the two have converged, where there's also, like, horrible authoritarian oppressive technocratic governments that restrict all your freedoms. And victories against them are kind of rare. I mean, there's definitely like the Star Wars model where it's much more hero's journey and defeating evil in the end, although it keeps on coming back. But in general, it, there's not a lot of movies where like everything becomes a utopia. And then the after that, movies. everything was fine. Right, right. That doesn't, <laughs> that doesn't really happen. And you're right, victories are small and fleeting. And typically, if we do see some sort of victory against what's going on in a dystopian state, it is one of this individual got away. This individual was right. able to live out their life peacefully. Right, or they sacrifice themselves to sure. blow up the big building or sure. whatever. Yeah, these stories are dealing with such realistic themes that we deal with, obviously, in very fantastic ways, but class struggles, wealth disparity, environmentalism that we can't solve. And so I think also our stories very rarely actually solve them. And, and it does tend to feel like no matter what one victory may be, like there's always sort of a, a still a pretty dark outlook on things overall at the end of them. Yeah, I don't think that we have necessarily the Russian literature version of dystopian novels where there's like a Dostoevsky or Tolstoy saying like, here's the problem, here's the solution, now let me give you a thousand pages about it. <laughs> we could really use that. <laughs> right? <laughs> Who would read it though? Who has the time? Who has the time these days, really? In this economy? <laughs> One of the more optimistic pop culture artifacts from 1984 is the commercial 1984 <laughs> made by Apple to introduce the Apple Macintosh. It was directed by Ridley Scott, so he was oh, keeping yeah. in his Blade Runner aesthetic. <laughs> yeah. Just before Legend was taken away from him and turned into the mess that it was released as theatrically. He's probably more satisfied with this commercial. <laughs> I'm sure he is. Yeah. <laughs> Have you seen it recently? Um, not super recently. Okay. Let's watch it. Roll the clip. <laughs> <laughs> Roll the clip, Jerry. <laughs> we are one people. We one whim. One resolve. One cause. On January 24th, Apple Computer will introduce Macintosh, and you'll see why 1984 won't be like 1984. Irony abounds. My first reaction watching oh, that just now is how far sports bras have come in the last <laughs> few decades. That uh, she is she is very uncontrolled as she is running toward that throw. She's free. She's free. Yeah. Unlike <laughs> all the people. She is, yeah. yeah, that was a metaphorical decision on the part of the filmmaker there. That was Ridley Scott. Ridley He's Scott thinking, was like, no bra. He's thinking of every detail. <laughs> the ironies are endless. Apple was recently announced as one of the two, I believe, trillion-dollar companies in the world. 
And then Apple also, they are the computer company that is the most insular. Steve Jobs built a model in which these computers cannot be taken apart, cannot be used with any other computer parts that are on the market. Also, Steve Jobs was a megalomaniac, Mm -hmm. narcissistic, pathological piece of trash Mm -hmm. who ran his company like a cult of personality who was terrified of the brave leader. Well, and their technology is largely what led to Big Brother. We are literally carrying around Big Brother in (laughs) our pockets. And everyone here has an iPhone (laughs) and a Mac in front of them. For all we know, we are being watched at this very moment, although we are recording it and hoping to be listening. (laughs) If we're being watched as well, I guess it's not that big of a deal. We're inviting the watching. Yes. Well, and as was mentioned earlier, the Patriot Act came around after 9-11, and Apple was one of the first companies to agree to hand over user information to the government. There's some stuff they still don't hand over, Mm -hmm. and they are relatively better on that than, like, specifically Android, because Android just gives everything, just hands everything straight to Big Brother. Right. It's called an Android. Come on. But still, uh, you know, in in terms of what brings about this world in which all of our data is there to be mined, Mm -hmm. Apple is just the one saying, we retain it. We're not going to share it with the government. We want to lead toward a corporation-controlled country, 1984. We don't want the government to be doing that. But it's a victorious ending because she throws a hammer at the screen. (laughs) But she she throws a hammer, you guys. You guys. (laughs) Did you see the hammer in the the screen? All those people watching are just, okay, this doesn't matter anymore. The screen broke. Broke. How could we follow someone yeah. whose screen broke? What were the were the people supposed to be free now? What was the implication there? Because they just still seemed pretty zombie-like. So the actual like intent of the commercial was that P- IBM was the dominant computer company at the time, and that people would actually be free to choose and have the more personal like computer experience. So it was meant to <laughs> symbolize, you know, empowering yourself. Which I guess you could argue, you know, we are all empowered with the power of Mac in our pockets now. So you know, well, we've only had also, to sell our soul to get there, right? And that's also the perfect capitalist vision of choice where it's between two private for-profit brands that will maximize slave labor on Apple's side or have helped in the Holocaust, which IBM did. Uh, the vision of choice in there, it's, it reminds me, we'll talk about it later in Brazil, when they're talking about ducts and how mm-hmm. you can buy hundreds of different kinds of colors of ducts for your home so you can be an empowered individual. And I think part of the kind of political underpinning in all dystopias is the political situation at the time. And the idea of conspicuous consumption really was at the heart of the political situation, but also the culture of the 1980s. Yeah, so that's obviously one of the most direct 1984 references uh, from the 1980s. The most direct (laughs) is 1984, (laughs) the movie, starring John Hurt. It was shot by Roger Deakins, who would later go on to win an Oscar for Blade Runner 2049. A well-deserved Oscar, if I long do say overdue. So. Yeah, yeah, Deacons is a god. Yeah. Um, Nineteen eighty-four as a movie, I don't think is. It's very faithful to the book. I watched about half of it and then kind of grew a, a little bored. <laughs> <laughs> go, oh, I, I was just going to say, I think that it's it's such a literal telling of the story, and it and it fails as a result. It, Novels need adaptation. Yep. And frequently, if it doesn't get enough of it, then it ends up being kind of boring, and you feel like you'd rather be reading this. It's a different kind of storytelling. It is. It's not the same form at all. Yeah. Um, Yeah. 
And we'll get into Brazil, obviously, in a few minutes, but Brazil borrows so much from 1984 and yet makes it into a movie and its own story. I watched 1984 after having rewatched Brazil, and it, it was just, it was like Brazil without any of the Brazil isms, and it was just like the most bare bones version. So I think it, it proves that 1984 belonged in its time and place and was, is, exactly. a, is, a, is still a great book to read for that, but needs a little bit more if you're going to adapt it into a movie. Mm-hmm. So 1984, the year also saw The Terminator. Uh, James Cameron's famous uh, sci-fi series about a future controlled by machines, as well as uh, 2010, the 1984 sequel to 2001, which uh, continued the hijinks of the sinister computer (laughs) HAL 9000, starring Helen Mirren and John Lithgow. (laughs) What? Yeah. Go-Go was in this? Yeah. I still haven't seen this movie. Go-Go. I have, I, oh, that's, that's cute. I like that. <laughs> that's, that's my pet name. I have, <laughs> yeah, I haven't seen that either. It's not very watchable. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend it. Given that cast, that's a shame. That's a damn shame. Isn't it? Feeling that 2001 would probably be the one that held that better out of the two. Yeah, yeah. Also, when you call it like the hijinks of hell, I'm make, you're making me think it's like a buddy comedy in space. <laughs> wouldn't that be great? <laughs> like, like Helen Mirren. <laughs> Let's go. And Hell 9000. And Hell, Space Baby. I never want to let you go. <laughs> 1984 also had the creation of Max Headroom, the world's first yes. computer-generated TV host, which we'll talk about a little bit in our next section. And something I have become a little bit obsessed with, which is... The birth is- of me? <laughs> What? I was born in 1984. Uh, (laughs) We haven't brought up me yet. (laughs) The birth of the Antichrist, yes. (laughs) There we go. There was that. And Fritz Lang's Metropolis, which was re-released in 1984 Mm. by Giorgio Moroder, musician and composer, who had a completely original soundtrack featuring music by Freddie Mercury, Pat Benatar, and Billy Squire. (laughs) That was basically made into the score of Metropolis. And I've listened to this soundtrack so many times now. It's actually, like, really good music. The movie is the movie. It's a movie from uh, 1927, I believe. Something like that, yeah. And it's basically kind of the father of sci-fi in movies. And also, in the years since then, whole new reels that have always been missing from Metropolis have been discovered and restored. It's so funny that, like, Giorgio Moroder, like, made this whole soundtrack for a movie that wasn't even the complete movie, but I've heard the soundtrack too, and it's really good. Metropolis is one of my favorite movies of all time, and was like one of the first times I like did like a film history thing to like look back at where sci-fi came from. I love Metropolis. I'm a big fan of Fritz Long. M is one of my favorite movies. It's transition to talkies. Um, but uh, for Metropolis, the version that you're referencing is the first time I saw it. And then oh, really? every wow. time there have been new versions of it that came out where they have added footage, they found something different, they've restored it in some way, they found a better print, something <laughs> like that. I, I consistently go back and rewatch it. Um, and to me, it is a story that is so related to 1984, and it was it far predates it. It really and so is. so clearly there are some... Some through lines that George Orwell was either inspired by or were kind of in the water in a way. You have that female character who is both the savior and the villain at the same time. Mm-hmm. And in Metropolis, they actually have a physical doubling of this person where it is two different entities, a robot and a human, that are leading the person in either direction or leading the group in either direction. And then, uh, you know, of course, in 1984, you have Julia and then Jill and Brazil. 
At the time, that version of Metropolis was not well-received. It was poorly reviewed and got two Razzie nominations. Mm. So... <laughs> so, did, so did The Shining. The Shining was, uh, was a heavy Razzie nominee. 1985 also saw the publishing of The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood, which has also <laughs> come back into our lives. You sounded so excited when you were saying that. The Handmaid's Tale. I like The Handmaid's Tale. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It was just funny, like, the the emotional mismatch between your glee of appreciation. <laughs> the Handmaid's Tale. Yeah, that's that's how I like Yeah, you're that's supposed to like sound that. sad every time you talk about it. Unless it's the Robert Duvall version, in which... In which uh, Natasha Richardson is just topless on the cover. <laughs> oh, really? Yes. It's so weird. Natopless yeah. Richardson? <laughs> <laughs> also, Faye Dunaway is <gasps> Serena Joy in that movie. Oh my god. I don't know how that hasn't been like more widely of a thing. Especially now that... I think like, we need to watch this new very soon. Tale. Yeah. Do you want to lead us into Brazil? <laughs> I will take now, us to Brazil. I will now take you to Brazil. Brazil! Fine <laughs> here, please. Oh, oh. Oh, oh. There. Thank you. Same again, please. Just there. Press harder this time. Good. Oh, what this is all about. That is your receipt for your husband. Thank you. And this is my receipt for your receipt. Mrs. Buttle, are you okay? That led in 1985 to the release of Terry Gilliam's Brazil. Terry Gilliam, Tom Stoppard, and Charles McCown wrote it. The music was by Michael Kamen, and it was released February 1985 in the UK and December 18th, 1985 in the USA. Has it been released yet? (laughs) (laughs) It'll be released next week at two theaters no one goes to in Burbank. The title and the story are inspired by the song from 1939 called Brazil by Ari Barroso. The legend goes that Terry Gilliam was on a beach in this steel town where everything is kind of covered in this fine uh, debris that, of course, you know, kills you over time. Uh, And he heard someone playing this super upbeat song on a boombox. And that kind of inspired the look and feel, as well as directly the title and the story. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's and it's also you know while they were doing this, it was in the height of a lot of the adversity that was going on politically in the UK with Margaret Thatcher doing a lot of the union breaking and um, you know privatizing just about every labor force that she could, and so it is a steel town is the perfect setting for something like this to occur. Yeah, and it's it's really interesting, too, because Terry Gilliam is known as such a quote-unquote British filmmaker, even though he's American. Yeah, he's from Minnesota, um, I think. But the actual times that really both of these movies are reflecting are the same kind of political trends of neoliberal like reform of economics and of policies and the privatization of public things and decimating the working classes. Brazil was developed under the titles The Ministry and 1984 and a Half. <laughs> the latter a nod not only to Orwell's original 1984, but also to Eight and a Half by, by Federico Fellini, <laughs> hmm. um, who was a big like visual influence on 
on Terry Gilliam. During the film's production, other working titles floated about, including The Ministry of Torture, How I Learned to Live with the System So Far, and So That's Why the Bourgeoisie Sucks. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god, I think they did themselves a favor with uh, sticking to Brazil. (laughs) Yeah, I think that was a good change. Terry Gilliam sometimes refers to this film as the second in his trilogy of imagination, starting with the movie Time Bandits in 1981 and ending with The The Adventures of Baron Munchausen in 1988. All are about what he calls the craziness of our awkwardly ordered society and the desire to escape it through whatever means possible. He's also talked about it being part of a different trilogy of his movies that are Brazil, Twelve Monkeys, and Zero Theorem. So that's well, so that's rumored that he said that, but he's publicly disavowed it. Oh, really? Oh, so I didn't know he that. may have okay. like it's. I I came across that, but I also came across that he like officially disavowed that. That this is like his kind of. I thought I saw the, him say it in an interview when he was promoting Zero Theorem, but I might. Well, be mistaken. and it's also like I double think. think. Yeah, I, yeah, absolutely. I, I would definitely say that dystopia and imagination and the power of storytelling to liberate you from horror is a thread through so much of Terry Gilliam's work mm-hmm. that I can also totally see those lumping or grouping together some of these movies. Into sure, Detroit. sure. Even you The know? Fisher King could be related. Absolutely, absolutely. Terry Gilliam, as he literally always has every single time, apparently, had a very difficult time getting this film made and then getting it released. Seriously, it's a wonder that he, he has ever released I can't anything. believe that the man who killed Don Quixote is actually made. It I has been seen by people. I still do not believe that it's actually <laughs> real. Um, yeah, the, it's just Don Quixote overshadowed, really, all of these other horror stories from throughout Terry Gilliam's career of trying to get his films made and released. Yeah, the fact that Don Quixote exists this is crazy to me because that's become a legend of Terry Gilliam's career that may be more prominent than any of the movies he's made. Well, there's already a movie about it not being made. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's a great, there's a fantastic documentary. If you ever like documentaries about filmmaking, Lost in La Mancha is fantastic and you should watch it immediately. In the autumn of 1985, it got released in the UK by one studio. It was like, I think it was 20th Century Fox that released it in the UK. And then it was supposed to be Universal that was going to release it in America. And they said the film tested so poorly that they wanted to kind of hold it back and totally re-edit it. It got to the point eventually where Universal commissioned an entire team of editors to create their own cut of Brazil in preparation for American release. So Terry Gilliam kind of, and I read in preparation for this some interviews with him where he really blatantly outlines his thinking of knowing that he could not go up against the studio, he could not go up against their lawyers or their legal team or approach it at all. In that sense, he had to go rogue, basically. In the autumn of 1985, Terry Gilliam and Robert De Niro, who stars in Brazil as well, appeared on Good Morning America to promote this film, which was finished but not yet released. Terry Gilliam was struggling with the studio and the studio head Sid Sheinberg quite publicly and Sid Sheinberg was also talking major shit about Terry Gilliam put an ad in the Daily Variety offering to sell Brazil to another studio and Robert De Niro rarely made TV appearances but agreed to help Terry Gilliam out the host Joan London asked Gilliam I hear you're having trouble with the studio is this correct? Terry Gilliam responded with no I'm having trouble with Sid Sheinberg here is an 8x10 photo of him and showed the entire nation his photograph Sheinberg was furious with this incident and it helped Terry Gilliam get the release of the film done in the cut that Terry Gilliam wanted. Because 
Sid Sheinberg's cut, the one that he ordered to be created, edited down to around an hour and a half and was given an entirely different ending that contradicted the entire spirit of the story. It's called the Love Conquers All (laughs) edition. It's crazy. I owned the DVD box set of this that came out in the late 90s and it had the Love Conquers All version. And I I always thought, like, why did they even include this? Why would anyone choose to watch this? So, of course, I did. And it's it's (laughs) borderline unwatchable as a movie. It takes out so much of the political commentary to the point that a lot of the happenings in the film don't even make sense. Right. It's a unique movie in a lot of ways that we'll like get into, but I feel like the politics of this movie are inseparable from the story it's telling. Mm -hmm. The Criterion Edition has a lot of backstory on the battle. There's an entire hour-long documentary just about that, and has both Terry Gilliam and Sid Schreinberg's point of view, and we're obviously like sympathetic to the filmmaker, and I am very much so in this case, and most cases in this way <laughs> but like to hear Sid Scheinberg talk about it he like likened uh, Gilliam to a terrorist <laughs> and like so even though he's like the man in, in charge like he felt personally like bullied by Terry Gilliam which is like really funny and really saw himself as the victim of this of course he did. story yeah. of course he did that's what rich people with power always think when they're told no it's literally all that boils down to. That's, yeah, that's hilarious. Yeah, he's never had someone push back against right. him before in this way, or actually find a way to get at him that exactly. he doesn't have a legal team to support him against. That's what personally offended him, is Terry Gilliam found a way to get him. Yeah. And so also during this time when Brazil was completed, but basically embargoed by the studio, Terry Gilliam agreed to teach a course at USC, and he actually showed the film several, many, many times over several weeks. Uh, And due to these screenings, the Los Angeles Film Critics Association gave Brazil the Best Film Award in in 1985, gave Terry Gilliam the Best Director Award, and gave them the Best Screenplay Award as well. And on the basis of those, uh, on the basis of those awards, uh, Universal finally relented to release the film that Terry Gilliam had made. Yeah, the film had also been released at Cannes, like much earlier than this, and got a mixed reception as movies um, that are as weird as this often do, but (laughs) got enough of a a response that that's why it was able to be released in Europe under the the original version. So it was really, yeah, the American studio being kind of an asshole. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was, aside from that USC (laughs) screening, there were also VHS copies of this movie floating around for a while. Tons of people were seeing this and a lot of Oscar voters were excited to vote for this movie to be nominated. And there was a question of, there hasn't really been a paid public screening of this. Is this eligible? And before they even got to that point, thankfully Universal finally released it. But it's kind of a weird situation of like, everybody's seen this. Everybody's talking about this movie. But and that also has its own kind of interesting political like connotations. Right. Like, is a movie even made yeah. <laughs> if a tree falls in a forest and it's only on VHS? <laughs> and it's an interesting comparison to Blade Runner, which went through a similar right. uh, which version is the proper version kind of oh, absolutely. Uh, shenanigans. Oh, and since the Brazil, as you mentioned, has been released in so many different versions and formats. Mm-hmm. Um, thankfully, the Criterion Collection folks have done the best job of being the most comprehensive about that. Um, But the studios are still releasing Blu-rays of, like, abbreviated, older cuts of Brazil that were not like the Terry Gilliam cut. Right, right. Uh, Where they, a lot of them are just going for, and this is often what happens when a studio has the, we have a market for a special cut of this movie, so we're going to just pile in as much footage as we can. Mm -hmm. And uh, you end up with a lot of extra stuff that's not good. 
And so, like, I think of Dune with this, the David Lynch movie, mm-hmm. where, like, there's this three-hour-plus version of Dune that is just piling in all of this, like, incomplete special effects. <laughs> dailies. And, yeah, basically just dailies have been People piled People eating in lunch. There's, like, <laughs> picking at a deli tray. <laughs> Kyle and McLaughlin's it, just eating sliced meats. <laughs> <laughs> that I might watch. But anyway, and, and you know, of course, David Lynch doesn't want his name on it, but there are these versions of movies out there where it's just like the studio says, hey, we can make money off of an uncut version of this. Let's make it three hours long. People will buy it. Well, that's what they do with like pretty much every movie now on the unrated editions, where mm. it's like they're trying to pretend like there's like some like racy scene that you haven't seen, and it's <laughs> right. like, no, this is the shit that they cut out because it wasn't very good, and now they're just sticking those ten minutes back in the movie. I want and it calling just it unrated. once. I want it just once to actually pay off and have there be like an added snuff film in the middle <laughs> of something where you're like, wow, this really is this is unrated, uncooperative, yeah. unbecoming. It's unrated because they cut it out before they gave it. <laughs> to the rating people yeah, because they didn't like, want it in the movie. Right. Moana took a dark turn. Yeah. <laughs> so the budget for Brazil was about $15 million and the box office in North America was less than $10 million. It was... That's because everyone had already seen it before. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It was officially released on bootleg VHS. The critical reception overall was very positive. Janet Maslin of the New York Times was very positive toward the film, stating Terry Gilliam's Brazil, a jaunty, wittily observed a vision of an extremely bleak future, is a superb example of the power of comedy to underscore serious ideas, even solemn ones. Roger Ebert, rest in peace, was less enthusiastic in the Chicago Sun-Times, giving the film two out of four stars and claiming that it was hard to follow. He felt the film lacked a confident grasp on its characters' roles in a story awash in elaborate special effects, sensational sets, apocalyptic scenes of uh, destruction, and a general lack of discipline. (laughs) But he also wrote positively about several parts of the movie, um, especially there's a scene where uh, the main character, Sam Lowry, has a literal tug of war over his desk with his office mate, um, and that kind of reminded Ebert of Charlie Chaplin's film Modern Times. So Ebert still had a lot, you know, obviously positive even in those co- critical comments to underscore about the movie itself. He might have preferred the Love Conquers All version. <laughs> Ebert right? had a weird time in the mid '80s. He he hated a lot of really important movies like Blue Velvet. It's true. It's he had true. this weird screed against. Yeah, and... we've had some wrong Ebert opinions on this sure, podcast. Yeah, it happens. It happens with any legend. Though, yeah, as absolutely. Well. Before we talk about the cast and the break down the plot, I wanted to just share uh, the part of the text from the trailer of the film, because I believe that it sums up the movie so perfectly and also encapsulates kind of how its politics are inseparable from the story it's telling. It's all about flights of fantasy and the nightmare of reality, terrorist bombings and late night shopping, true love and creative plumbing. <laughs> It's only a state of mind. Yeah, that's Brazil in a nutshell. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's a Brazil nut. <laughs> Brazil star is Jonathan Price as Sam Lowry. Sam Lowry is a kind of governmental bureaucrat functionary in this society that is deliberately not set in the future, but is the kind of, I believe, the 1990s? When is it set? Does it have a date? I don't remember I there was a, a date, date in there. Yeah, Yeah, it's very vague about the date, but we don't get the sense that this is any far-flung future. We get the sense that it's kind of, quote-unquote, present day. Yeah, there's no super future technology that we see to the point of, like, flying cars or anything like that. But all of society writ large is condensed into this one corporate government called Central Services. And Jonathan Price's character, Sam Lowry, works for Central Services as this kind of 
paper-pushing computer nerd bureaucrat. Kim Grace stars as Jill Layton. Jill is first a dream girl, manic pixie or otherwise, who appears... She, I mean, she's pretty much literally a she is manic pixie. pretty literally. Is. I think she has a pixie cut. Yeah. She appears in these dreams that Sam Lowry is having every night, which are basically the only dreams he has. Then later, Jill Layton as a character is actually introduced, and she's part of the central plot that involves a governmental mistake, a bureaucratic typo in a central system, and because of this particular typo, Archibald Buttle gets kidnapped and tortured and killed by the government when it was supposed to be Archibald Tuttle. Yeah, and it it does go into a little bit of detail about what it is that Tuttle is accused of. He is a rogue engineer is essentially the issue is that he's doing engineering work outside of the realm of central services. So doing work for free is really his crime. And doing work outside of the bureaucracy specifically as well. So Jill Layton is the upstairs neighbor of Buttle, who is mistakenly taken away and killed. She goes to central services and is trying to rectify the situation and get Buttle freed. That's how she and Sam Lowry encounter each other. Sam feels the need to try to be heroic and get to the bottom of this situation and rectify Central Service's mistake, which of course eventually makes him a target for the government as well. Also considered for Jill Layton's role were Jamie Lee Curtis, Ellen Barkin, Rebecca De Mornay, Radon Chong, Rosanna Arquette, and Madonna. Terry Gilliam reportedly was dissatisfied with Grease's performance and chose to cut or edit some of her scenes as a result. A lot of those end up in the Love Conquers All version. <laughs> oh, really? That's interesting. Mm-hmm. I, st- I still haven't watched that version. I, I'm no afraid to. Mm-hmm. Also in the film are Michael Palin from Monty Python, uh, Terry Gilliam's comedy troupe, Bob Hoskins, Ian Holm, the amazing Catherine Helmond as Sam's mother, Mrs. Ida Lowry, and Jim Broadbent as Mrs. Lowry's plastic surgeon, Dr. Jaffe. So did either of you see Brazil when you were growing up? I did. I saw it for the first time when I was nine, I think. I was on a Robert De Niro kick. <laughs> <laughs> Who amongst us hasn't had a De Niro kick right, at nine? Right, of course. Um, my, my, I grew up with two older brothers, and that exposed me to a lot of film that I probably wouldn't have seen as an elementary schooler. Mm-hmm. I think my brother David and I watched The Godfather, The Godfather Part Two, and then, you know, obviously we're watching lots of other things like Goodfellas and whatnot, you know, just kind of looking through what's available. We saw Brazil... Oh, Robert De Niro's in this. Oh, it's directed by a Pythoner who also made Time Bandits, which we loved. So let's rent this and watch it. Loved it. Made me petition very hard to see 12 Monkeys in the theater when it came out the next year. Yeah, and so it became part of my culture growing up. It was immediately a movie I loved. And that, along with Monty Python, were a big part of what cultivated my sense of humor as an adult. Same, same. Chris? No, I never saw it as a kid. I didn't know what it was. Uh, I don't think I'd ever even heard of this movie. And then at a certain point, like, I just heard the title and kind of knew, like, who was in it. Saw, like, the cover art and it looked interesting. It has, Mm -hmm. like, a very, um, it's like a kind of a neon-colored Brazil thing that just looks appealing <laughs> and i was like a movie about brazil that sounds fun <laughs> so, exotic yeah uh, so about like probably 10 years ago I, I rented it and it was not what i was expecting <laughs> it had nothing to do with brazil uh i was a little disappointed about that i was looking forward to some rainforest action 
um, there's not a single jungle in here. But yeah, I found it a really interesting movie. So I had not seen it again before preparing for this podcast, but I bought it on Criterion because I knew that I found it an interesting movie and was interested in kind of delving more into it. Yeah, and the Criterion sets are really just fantastic, um, both for the comprehensive kind of different versions, but also for those extra features and documentaries about the making of it. Mm-hmm. It's like, again, it's that's one of those things where it's interesting that Criterion in the home video kind of section of things, it does such a good job of presenting movies. Again, like going toward like the changing ways that we take in movies. It's interesting that Criterion stand out in that good way. So I first saw Brazil in high school. There have been some like formative periods of time that I've addressed many times on the podcast of when my tastes developed. Were you at summer camp? <laughs> I was not, but that was one of the most important and long-lasting times. I went to a bunch of summer camps. This was not there or then. In high school, we would once a year take a week of classes different than any of our other classes during the year. One year, I took a film history class as part of this. And we ended up watching, like, at least 30 or 40 movies, like, it just in class. But also, I came away with a list of, like, another, like, 50 movies to watch. So, it was a real, like, tr- baptism by fire of going through a lot of cinema history all at once. And it was so mind-bending to me. And at that time, my cousin had already, like, wanted to be a filmmaker. And, like, I knew he was, like, headed that way. But I had no inkling of doing anything like that. Um, I just really loved, like getting into really good movies for the storytelling and for the visuals. And Brazil was just a movie that blew my mind in so many ways on every level, like the formal level, like to how it was shot and like the crazy wide angle um, lenses and all these amazing long tracking shots. Like it's just visually so arresting and every level of its world and atmosphere are so detailed and singular and oppressive, each in their own little detailed way, um, that it was the kind of movie that I immediately knew, like, oh, I want to watch this more times because I know there's more I'm going to get out of this than what I'm just seeing this first time. So what did you think watching the movie now? Was there uh, more that you saw this time that you hadn't seen before? Um, and how did you connect or not to the story as it is and also any of the kind of political elements of it? That is a lot of question. <laughs> Answer in one sentence. Brazil. <laughs> I was going into this movie knowing that we were doing an 80s dystopia podcast, which I've been planning for <laughs> a little while. And I had started rewatching other movies in this sort of genre to kind of see, you know, which ones would be interesting to talk about. And so I would say I watched all of the other movies that I was curious about that I hadn't seen and then went back to Brazil. And so it was interesting to kind of watch it as a cap on oh, all of this. Great, yeah. And yeah, I watched the movie first of all and enjoyed it again. And yet I appreciate the movie so much more kind of when I was listening to Terry Gilliam's commentary on it and just like looking more at the production design and sort of the themes. Because I feel like it's a very, on the surface, I don't know, there's a certain element of this movie that I think feels a little basic in a way. First of all, because the plot of the the 1984 thing is already, um, has been done so many times such as in 1984, uh, that I was looking at it in a way like, oh, I don't know that this really adds anything to that. It kind of just borrows that and then does it in a slightly twisted way. So there's that. And then I was a little 
unsure about the romantic subplot and the female character and thinking that she's kind of very basic as well. Wondering if it was problematic that he just like has this fantasy of this woman and that she kind of just like pops up and the whole, I don't know, she's like literally basically an angel in his fantasy. And I just kind of was like, oh, is this kind of like a vestige of 80s, like the girl kind of movies? And so that was kind of the first reaction I had to it where I still enjoyed the movie, but I was a little bit unsure about that. And then kind of going back into it and thinking about it more, I got a lot more out of it and saw that it's a little bit more of a commentary on that than it is necessarily a perpetrator of of it. Yeah, that's so interesting because I was, to be honest, very trepidatious preparing for this podcast. Mm. I was like more excited about these titles than I have been for almost anything on the podcast and in life. (laughs) I've been a huge fan of Terry Gilliam since the first time I saw Brazil, but I had read things about how Terry Gilliam has treated especially actresses on some of his sets. And of course, I was not there, so I can't speak personally to any of this, but he's got a reputation of being prickly and scaring people on sets to try to get the results that he wants. And he's also made these kind of problematic comments about like Me Too in defense of some of his friends. So I was very on alert I would say, for things that would be problematic or things that would seem more problematic now in retrospect, just coming back to this movie. But I have to say, like, I watched it a couple times, again, to prepare for this episode. And to me, it's just so unassailably good. And to me, the kind of plot elements that are obviously very silly or even very on the nose in their own way, I think really still work for me because of how kind of Monty Python-esque so much of the satire is, while still being ultimately really grounded in the characters. Like, so much of this that is so crazy is just coming from the characters and so much of the satire of it and so much of the political aspect of this story relies on characters dramatizing it because what it's really talking about is this horrible inhumane system being filtered down through the people who are caught up in it and it made me kind of sad there aren't more movies that try this very darkly satirical political angle telling stories not just like in sci-fi but in all kinds of genres I actually was thinking about earlier you had mentioned The Handmaid's Tale and as you're talking about this I don't like the Handmaid's Tale series. I think that it's a fine piece of literature that's been bastardized and stretched out into ungodly two seasons of a show. And, uh, and it has hot takes coming on through. <laughs> Fresh tray of hot takes. <laughs> it has so much seriousness to it, and it doesn't really have a sense of joy or humor that I think has to be found in a lot of the time when we're dealing with these kinds of situations. If it's just constant depression, there's not a lot that you can really hang on to there to really see you through. And even when you look at something like 1984, there's an internal monologue going on in Winston's head about his neighbor asks him, do you have any spare razor blades? And he knows he does, but he lies because he wants those razor blades for himself and little things like that that are funny that kind of come up and they're they're subtle and small but they can kind of help see you through um mm-hmm. i mentioned earlier this is a movie that i grew up with so of course i have love for it and i watched it i've watched it consistently it's a christmas movie to me um, <laughs> then, that's true it is it is it's a great christmas movie and then uh it, it's the gift of uh lobotomy self lobotomy uh <laughs> what we all wish for uh and then 
Also, uh, again, talking about my wife, not only was 1984 in our wedding vows, but Brazil was a movie that we bonded over when I first met her. We talked about movies. I recommended Brazil, and she watched it, and it was the first conversation we had was talking about Brazil. So it's a movie that, for me, is hard to you know necessarily take that step away from I watched this movie long ago and I'm watching it again. But I will say this is the first time I've watched it in the context of I'm going to watch a bunch of other films of this era and of this time. And I saw so many influences and so many ways in which the commercials, this film opens with a commercial for ducks. And, uh, and it's, and it's <laughs> Which I thought was ducks for a long ducks. time. Just <laughs> ducks the animal. You yes. get them all in a row. I was very confused. I was like, I don't see any ducks. <laughs> I don't think there are hundreds of different colors of duck. So uh, so it opens with, with this silly commercial, and there's a lot of silly advertising throughout. And then that ends up becoming a huge influence for Paul Verhoeven, for his films later on, oh, for, for John Carpenter and his uh, sense of dystopia. Also, it clearly does have some influences from stuff like early David Cronenberg. That through line was one that I hadn't really seen before that I found really interesting. In terms of the female role, I, I agree that I think that you could kind of read it that way, but I think what the film is really trying to say is, look at this guy who's so sad and lonely and desperate and he becomes a super creep stalker and it really is the biggest abuse of something like the patriot act that we're seeing like what people are afraid of the patriot act being which we have seen real life versions of this oh yeah fbi agents yeah like stalk their Mm ex-girlfriends through the fbi yeah nsa agents doing the same thing Absolutely. absolutely yeah so i think that it it does showcase that and we do see that when he gets in her cab of her truck she's saying get out leave me alone get away from me and ultimately, because of her dire circumstances, she's eventually won over. But consistently, through their first encounter where he just latches himself onto her, he does nothing but bring her trouble. And, right, and uh, doom himself, too. Exactly. Like, his every attempt to be heroic is just dooming himself more. Yes, yes. And it's all built up around this fantasy that he has of escape and something there. But yeah, he does have this unrealistic view of what this woman is, what she's going to bring for him, what she means to him. And, uh, you know, in his final delusion that he has, that he becomes stuck in in a vegetative state, it is this fantasy that he wanted all along. He didn't ever really want a real person. He just wanted to live in this fantasy world that he would go to sleep up and dream of. Yeah, what ultimately I think works about this movie is that it does comment on sort of the fantasy girl versus reality girl. (laughs) What makes me uncomfortable about the female character, I guess, is how quickly she falls for him and how it kind of feels like it goes against her nature to eventually, like, jump into bed with him. I did hear that there was some more of her character that got cut out of the movie and maybe actually scenes that were shot. So maybe there was more there, but it is the 80s. And I think ultimately it kind of does dig into that, like, the girl kind of thing where no matter who the woman is in the beginning, she will end up just, you know, becoming a sexual reward at some point. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. It's a pretty thinly drawn character as such, definitely. And I think what saves this movie from doing that is that it does, in the end, become a fantasy. Right. And Mm -hmm. that it is in his mind, and that it's saying, you know, the only escape that you have from all of this horrible stuff in the world, like, the only thing that you really have control over is your own mind. And that, I think, is a really important message. And the fact that the fantasy that he has is so kind of over the top, where he's this literal, like, white shining knight flying through the air as, like, an angel superhero... 
and that she's so like this long blonde haired like basically an angel as well I think that that highlights how kind of silly the romance is supposed to be exactly. I wish that there was a little bit more of the reality because there is a moment when I feel like the fantasy becomes real for him which is why it's so ironic that the movie ends there in certain re- versions where it's just the love con- conquers all version like literally God. makes that the ending and it make it completely like changes the entire meaning of the entire movie if that becomes the actual ending and he gets what he wants um, the fact that he kind of I, I guess you can maybe argue that he's it's still kind of filtered through a certain fantastic point of view for him and that maybe because it, it's the sex scene and, and the part around that is presented very fancifully mm-hmm. there's like a lot of like like there's a big burst of like probably the Brazil song like yeah. when they right. like she jumps on top of him it's shot like a dream sequence mostly mm-hmm. right yeah. and so I guess maybe yeah the argument could be that this is him for fulfilling his fantasy but maybe it's not actually the reality of what's happening and that if Mm -hmm. this were allowed to go on a little bit longer we would maybe see like her perspective but I do kind of wish that there was a little bit more of her just you know kind of being herself in that scene because she just kind of completely goes like breathy girl like literally puts on a blonde wig and is like I'm a different person now yeah I agree. I've always read that part of the movie as being a beginning of the end for his sanity. Mm-hmm. That That is, he is starting to lose grip on reality. And we've already had him experience visual hallucinations while awake by that point. Yes. So he's already kind of represented that. I don't question that they had sex, but I question the reality of what we see on screen. Um, and I think that you're right from her character. What we know about her, I would say, is kind of interesting and compelling, at least from a 1985 perspective, of she is somebody who is always wearing work clothes. She's wearing a, you know, a, with the coveralls all the time. Yeah, she she's has, like super butch. Yeah, she's super butch. <laughs> Big rig driver. She drives Come a on. she drives a truck. She makes deliveries. That's her job. And she's and she also is kind of a compelling character in that her downstairs neighbor gets taken away by the authorities and has been killed, but she doesn't know about it. And she is like taking all of her free time right. to go try to resolve this issue. And she's literally the only person who gets enough of the shit. That's why I kind of. As again, as kind of relatively thinly drawn compared to the lead characters in our story, as I think Jill Layton is, like I do like that she shows herself at least as being this empathetic and caring person, even underneath that tough facade. So I kind of buy that she would fall in love with someone, um, but I think there would be a much more compelling way of writing that. One moment I really loved with her character is when Sam first goes to the apartment. He doesn't know that she's there, that she's the upstairs neighbor, but he goes to the apartment to, well, what he thinks is doing a nice gesture of returning a check to the woman whose husband has just been murdered. They were overcharged. He's doing the right thing. (laughs) So he thinks that that $32 or whatever is going to cheer up her Christmas. Mm -hmm. I forget exactly what happens, but he ends up like on the floor and seeing Jill in a mirror asking, are you okay? And him and we think, at the moment that she's asking him if he's okay right and then you end up seeing that this is being reflected in a mirror and she's actually asking the woman are you okay which makes so much more sense because she doesn't even know this man but in his fantasy like of course she would ask him if he's okay because they're meant to be together and i thought that that was a really clever way of expressing what was in his head versus what's actually happening 
Yeah, and I think that's also a testament to the amazing, amazing performance of Jonathan Price in this movie. Mm. Um, I think his performance as Sam Lowry just immediately draws you in. Imme- like, And he wears so much of it on his face, um, just in his dumbfounded reactions to everything happening in life. Um, you immediately just get the sense of powerlessness that's like part of every bit of him and it it does even though those uh dream sequences have that kind of unstuck in time but very decidedly 80s look to them um jonathan price's performance i think really grounded me in those dream sequences and made them such a compelling part of the movie um cuz also it's like there there are so many fantastic images like there one in one of the first dream sequences there are these like marching muppet like ghoul baby faced things <laughs> yeah those things are so creepy they're so creepy it felt very uh, jim henson labyrinth it to did. me yeah. Or Dark yeah. Crystal. they look yeah. like skexies yeah yeah it was very labyrinthine in his kind of dream fantasy life eventually the the object of his hatred um appears before him as this like gigantic samurai which was an homage to akira kurosawa but it's also made out of like computer parts. So it's like this yeah. old school thing, but also made out of very new school technology where, mm. you know, a, a theme of this movie is obviously things that are man made, you know, like uh, yes. manufacturing. And, and there's also a very deliberate intermixing of futuristic looking technologies and retro things mm-hmm. um, to the extent that that's been one of the biggest influences of Brazil as a movie is that kind of idea of retro futurism. That's what Jean Pierre Genet, who's, you know, like directed Delicatessen. Uh, City of Lost City Children. Of Lost Children. Yeah. yeah, and is very known for using... And Alien Resurrection. <laughs> and also Alien Resurrection. Yeah, the, the movie that uh, split him and Mark Caro, his co-director, for his first two films. True. I don't know if this is on purpose, but the movie begins with a title card telling us what time it is. It's 8.49 p.m., mm. which is a bit of an anagram for 1940, or 1984 and 1948, but uh, specifically 1984. Uh-huh. And I was wondering... Because Terry Gilliam had said that he'd never read 1984 either, and that, that it wasn't a direct influence, although he, I think, is aware that it has like seeped into pop culture enough that it is an influence. Mm-hmm. But that seems insane to me, because this seems like a, almost a direct copy of 1984. I think it is. And I think that Tom Stoppard brought a lot of that in. Maybe so, yeah. I think that, because the original script was Terry Gilliam, and then, um, I'm trying to remember the name of the third writer. Um, uh, McCown. Yeah, McCown, and so the two of them were kind of the Inception writers, but um, from what I recall uh, from the DVD uh, Criterion documentary stuff, the original version of the script had almost no dialogue in it, that it was mostly description of events, and it was almost a silent film. And so then Tom Stoppard was brought in at that point to add a lot of story, dialogue, details of what was going Hmm. on, and that that's really what kind of brought this in to be more specifically a story about 1984 was my guess because Tom Stoppard, I think being British and a very literary person would be more tied into that. That makes a lot of sense because it does feel like the dialogue has a lot of his witticism and I don't know if I can even like capture exactly what Tom Stoppard is, but that kind of bureaucratic, it sounds very advanced and yet there's something kind of stupid underneath it. Right, right. pointless. Well, well, I think about like uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead is, is, I would say, is quintessential Tom Stoppard. 
And it's like one of those things where you can pluck out any line, like, uh, why don't you do something about these terrorists? Well, I'm on lunch right now. Plus, it's not my department. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. anything like that. And you, know, you pluck out any random line and you can draw out so much from it is, to me, very Tom Stoppard. And this also doesn't sound like any other Terry Gilliam movie. No other Ter- Terry Gilliam it's movie true. has this kind of speed and wit of dialogue. Yeah, it's true. You can really sense the influence of multiple voices in the writing of this movie in a way that I think, again, like as deliberately overstuffed as it is, helps make it so rewarding on multiple viewings. And I think kind of makes it require multiple viewings to get all the layers of it. <sighs> Mother, I just wish you would stop interfering. I don't want promotion. I'm happy where I am. No, you're not. Jack Lint is a lesson to you. He doesn't have your brains, but he's got the ambition. You haven't got the ambition. Luckily, you've got me and the deputy minister. Mr. Helpman was very close now, to your please, father. please, Mrs. Lowry, <laughs> don't get upset. <laughs> Mr. Lowry, please wait at reception. You're giving her wrinkles. You see? God! Just try and relax, Mrs. Lowry. <laughs> Make you 20 years younger. Oh, Dr. Jaffe, you are a genius. Would you like to be Surgeon General? I know simply everybody. Well, they won't know you when I've finished with you. Mm-hmm. First, we remove the excess derma. Yeah, it's the kind of comedy where... Like, if you're not paying attention, the lines aren't funny. Like, you have to actually, like, think about them, and it'll often take you, like, an extra second to realize that a a line that you just heard was funny because there's no pause for, you know, (laughs) like, mugging shot. You know, it's just kind of all tossed off in this very, like, witty British way that is really funny. I guess Tom Stoppard wrote a lot of the movie, like, on his own. Like, Terry Gilliam really wanted to be, like, there with him, like, collaborating, and Tom Stoppard was like, nope, I'm gonna go often write it myself <laughs> and so i think that that's probably what came through was a very tom stopperty voice in, oh absolutely in this very tele- yeah and the, the bureaucratic witticism of it is mm-hmm. still so fucking i mean if anything it's more hilarious now in the kind of fake news age but i also love the way that that's kind of reflected in this malfunctioning system and malfunctioning technology surrounding everyone i love that like every single bit of technology and every device is like slightly malfunctioning in a way that just has these horrific, bloody, horrible consequences down the line for other people. But, like, the coffee maker, like, pours coffee on Sam Lowry's toast every morning. The computer resulting in this buttle-tuttle thing is literally just misprinting one letter of this guy's name and ends in breaking up a family with, like, four or five kids in it. And I also noticed the charge only being like 32 or 34 pounds or something that he owes the government. It's just these really tiny fuck-ups and, and mishaps and accidents, but they result in these really horrible things. Right, right. And the charge that he was brought in on wasn't supposed to kill him. It was that Tuttle's file didn't have the heart condition on it, listed on it, that Buttle actually had. So really, there was no error. All of the information that was delivered to information retrieval was correct. It was actually the error of this other department. And so that kind of governmental passing on to somebody else to say, this is your error, this is your error, you're the ones who fucked this incident up is uh is so true and oh, yeah. so like present in today and i culture. love that like jill layton sequence where she's like having getting shuttled between like six different departments to try mm-hmm. to even just track down the like the receipt right and the location of buttle right right do you have a do you have an arrest receipt yes here is, is it, it stamped, stamped? <laughs> <laughs> and uh yeah not to bring us too much into the 
modern day, but we are literally losing people <laughs> yeah. that the government has seized right now, right. which is right. a very big thing in the news. One of the things that jumped out to me as a distinction between this and 1984, the more that I thought about this movie, it wasn't quite as clear to me the first time that I watched it or the first time in 10 years that I had rewatched it, just how much about inefficiency it is and how, you know, 1984 is about this society that has so much control over its people and is basically methodically rewriting history and has everything down like to the perfect science. And this is the very same thing, except for it also shows how much of an accident that is or how that kind of exists despite everyone who works for the government in this story being stupid. <laughs> and, and how ultimately you can't stop chaos from happening. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's very interesting to look at this in regard to our government right now, which is also Absolutely. very much malfunctioning and has a a lot of incompetence in multiple roles and things working against each other and just like it, it's a wonder that things have not fallen apart <laughs> well more. but see it's also i think also one thing that leapt out to me even more positively this time is how it shows that in actuality the government and central services work just fine if you're rich yeah. they work they function very effectively for the people who already have power yeah you get to keep eating your mush food yeah. after a terrorist attack has gourmet occurred in that mush restaurant. food <laughs> <laughs> yeah number two <laughs> Yeah, so the, it's an interesting through line in this movie that there are all these terrorist attacks all the time. Um, like, the movie starts with that literal bang, and there are scenes in the movie where, you know, people's dinner, like we're saying, was interrupted by a bombing in one corner of the restaurant. Um, but it's never actually clear who these terrorists are. It's also abundantly clear that in this world, the government calls everyone a terrorist. In fact, uh, T- the charge against Tuttle is freelance subversion. <laughs> He's literally like business freelancing but that's considered like a terrorist crime against the state um and to the extent that since you really don't know who's responsible necessarily for these bombings it's kind of an open question as to whether the government is actually perpetrating these bombings to like keep people afraid and keep people in line um but it's also an interesting thing how the society, even all these rich people, have become so acclimated to that being a part of their daily lives that it doesn't even get in the way of their meal. Which, honestly, again, feels a little bit too close to home today. That Oh, but I, I think that makes it hit harder for me. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. yeah. I always had the understanding that the terrorists weren't actually terrorists. That her line in the cab where she says, have you ever actually met a terrorist, is her saying. Mm-hmm. I live in the world. I actually interact with people who would be terrorists, and they don't exist. People are just trying to get by. They're trying to eat. They're not blowing up buildings. And especially the places where these terrorist bombings occur are typically in very high-profile places where it then encourages the people with power to continue with stuff like information retrieval. That it's just a cycle to make sure that people are always afraid, that they always trust central services. That they always increase their budgets. Yeah, exactly. And the same thing goes on in 1984 with the constant war that they're at. Um... Oceania, the country, is bombing its own people, but saying that it was an attack from East Asia or Eurasia. And that way, they're always able to say, we have to have this strict rule of law because we're under constant threat. Yeah, I find that really interesting. The media will come out as a theme in a lot of these movies. I think, in a way, Brazil has it the least, and yet it's still there. I think the terrorism thing is a little bit more subtle here in the way that it, you know, we have these attacks... And we see them, but they're so 
uncommented upon and we never really learn that much about them. It, like, it's not the central focus. But I do love that everyone is so nonchalant about it. Like, it doesn't even matter or occur to them, like, who is actually the terrorist, like, or what, what they could be trying to accomplish, that it has become so ingrained in society that it's just, oh, it's the terrorists. Like, that's it. There's no more behind it to even wonder about. Right? Yeah, and it's like, talk about things that just hit so much harder now because of the time that's passed and the events that happen in our own lives. Like, the whole, like, vocabulary of the war on terror and the way that that's changed our perspective on policing and, and military and all of that is just kind of especially resonant rewatching this movie like the there it also seems like cuz the, these uh kind of stormtrooper people who were going through people's apartments are like drilling holes in floors and like coming down fire poles like looney tune style and it seems like in this version of the world most people are pretty nonchalant about that happening in their midst cuz it also seems like they would like get paid off or whatever for their troubles and central services sends a floor repairman there's a special like division that goes around with like giant circles that they can put back in people's <laughs> floors do they have matching circles I want to know where they're getting those. <laughs> there must be, you must order your circle from a catalog and be like, oh, I have this blue carpet. But they didn't have the right one. They didn't bring the right one. It falls straight through the floor. So that's, again, lack of efficiency. Right. But it's also just the question of, like, why do they do it that way? Why right, do they right. come through the ceiling? There is no reason. <laughs> right, right. Well, but you do get the suggestion that if they actually had the right Tuttle instead of Buttle, that he would probably have been ready with his pistol to shoot them to, oh, yeah. you know, get away. So, while I agree, it's a ridiculous degree to which they are storming this place. Um, there is at least some warrant if they were getting the right person. But, uh, but you know, you, you were mentioning you saw this for the first time in high school and post 9-11. Uh, so much of the, you know, if you don't do this, the terrorists win. If you do this, the terrorists win. Uh, was it was so much of the language of the yes. early 2000s. And yes. I feel like that is so present in this movie. And I think a lot of parts of this country still echo those things today. Oh, but then also, like, what hit me so hard this time were just the images of the kind of hyper-militarized, all-clad-in-black body armor dropping down through the ceiling. Like, that, they looked like DH, uh, DHS and ICE agents. They mm. looked like militarized police forces. They look like the cops who drive around in tanks. And they're also doing exactly what they do in this movie, is they're kidnapping people uh, off of the street, out of their homes. Um, they're, they've literally gotten caught, like, putting bags over people's heads to shield them from public view when when these agents like notice people filming on their cell phone cameras, they will put bags over people's heads. So it was like, it, it was horrifying having the realization that at the time that this came out, that image would have inherently been so much sillier and so much more fantastical than it is now. Yeah, it is disturbing in that way. And it was really depressing the degree to which all of that has kind of been already normalized so much that it's kind of, of course they'll like drop in in this crazy stormtrooper gear like they're prepared for actual like war in an urban zone very true yeah yeah and yeah there there is a lot in this that is more accurate to today than we would wish it was and in the way that our modern society reflects what was a comic take on dystopia from 
30 plus years ago. So another character that I want to talk about in this movie is Sam's mother, Ida Lowry. She is played by the glorious Catherine Helmond, and she is one of my favorites on every level, from her plastic surgeon, Jim Broadbent, who literally just like pulls her face back <laughs> to Jim Carrey-esque dimension. Yeah. <laughs> and then the increasing and escalating and then devolving rounds of plastic surgery that Ida and her friends go through. I found it such a simultaneously comical and also kind of depressing because that's a reality for so many people now, especially people with the money to reshape their whole faces. Right. This movie is so much about people not questioning things and not really thinking things through. And I think this is another example of that where it's just kind of a given that they need to have this plastic surgery. And so what's really funny is the mother's friend. Alma Terrain. Who is consistently like in worse and worse shape, like in a wheelchair, <laughs> like her face is mangled. And yet she is just still pretty sure that she's going to pull out of she's it. So and like, she's going to look... So beautiful is, at the end of this. <laughs> this is one of my favorite lines in the movie was Alma Terrain. Um, my complication had a little complication. <laughs> what did this happen to you now? My complication had a little complication. But Dr. Chapman says I'll soon be up and bounding about like a young gazelle. You're buying a Christmas present for your mother? What? Oh, um, yes, little... Shirley and I come here regularly. We love romantic lingerie. <laughs> Sam, picture me these. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. so great. I love that I love line. That character. And I think one of the things that initially kind of puts me off of this movie a little bit is like feeling like that there are maybe too many things going on and they're not as related and it takes me a little while to kind of get how the plastic surgery thing really fits in with the rest of the movie but the fact that they place their trust in a doctor oh of course it's a doctor so he knows what he's doing it's the same thing that people are doing with the government it's like well it's the government of course what they say goes let's not question it and I find that that's a really interesting aspect that runs through these things that to me didn't feel like they had a lot to do with each other. I also love that this movie takes place at Christmas time and it's kind of a subtle thing but just the commercialism of Christmas and the offsetting of these sort of cheerful <laughs> Christmas lights with like these horrible things that are happening that people aren't really commenting on or reacting to. It's very nightmarish but in a very mundane way as well. It appears to us as nightmarish but no one in the world is reacting to it as if it is which makes it I think a lot scarier. Yeah, well, you know, as you talk about the idea of the plastic surgeon fitting into this world and what this whole movie's about, a lot of what this movie's about is people being incompetent, people not doing their jobs well. You know, the yes. whole catalyst for this main storyline <laughs> with Buttle Tuttle is somebody messing up and hitting a fly that's been bothering him and having it land on a typewriter. And so all of the major events end up being related to somebody not doing their job effectively. And in this case, we have the best plastic surgeons are actually destroying people's faces and are mutilating them. And, uh, you know, in the obvious dream sequence of reality, it eventually leads to her being just dismembered parts in a coffin. And, like, <laughs> gelatinous goo. out onto the floor during her funeral. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, uh, so it's an interesting 
aspect of the movie because you're right it doesn't really ring as clearly to be part of the whole like lives are at stake or uh, you know clear things going wrong that are related to the government like how his power doesn't work or his, his appliances don't work his heating goes crazy and he's sleeping in the refrigerator but it is related in the way of like this is a world filled with people who pretend to be able to do something that they cannot do everyone has lied on their resume well and not just do things but also pretend to be able to control things that they couldn't ever possibly control right right it's kind of like you know you, you mentioned that this isn't quite sci-fi in the way that there isn't really future technology but it's like they're pretending they're in a sci-fi world like they pretend that they have some magical plastic surgeon abilities that can make people look youthful but they actually don't yeah it's so absurd and yet it really does have to be this absurd i think to get the point across when you look at people who are actually doing plastic surgery and actually kind of are mangling their faces in real <laughs> life yeah. and you know a lot of them end up looking very very strange <laughs> yeah and like feline yes <laughs> feline definitely i like, had that realization earlier today when i was like thinking about the like plastic surgery through line in this movie it's interesting how much more kind of mundane that's become mm -hmm. and it's not solely a kind of upper class obsession but i would definitely say that it's one that's trickled down from a celebrity and fame and wealth obsessed culture so it, again it's kind of interesting watching this movie very much living now in the world created by the same kind of forces that drove these stories well, yeah, we are sitting here watching this movie meant to criticize these people for being, for not questioning. For, we're meant to, like, be like, hey, lady, like, that man is actually mangling your face. Why aren't you actually really <laughs> upset about this? And yet, in our real life, we are also, like, people are also having the sa same thing right. and are not questioning it. And the same thing with all the governmental stuff. More recently, we've been questioning more of that than we historically did. But there are all these things that are like, why do we do it that way? That doesn't make any sense. That's terribly inefficient. Why do you obsess over whether this form is stamped or not? Yes. Right. The technology aspect, I think, is another one. I mean, this one has ducks everywhere. And, and <laughs> the sets in this movie are beautiful. And they're so well designed. And yet there's always something kind of hideous also in the frame. Oh, yeah. And, mm -hmm. and just gross and gooey and dirty. And what that made me think of immediately was to, Sam Lowry's apartment later on when Bob Hoskins and this other goon come by from Central Services and they're the kind of legally appointed heating and air conditioning repairmen and they like legally seize Sam Lowry's apartment and kind of tactically disassemble it from the inside out um, pretty much just overtly as revenge but this kind of super official bureaucratic revenge Mm -hmm. Yeah, it really reminded me of something I think about a lot, which is like technology, you know, it's supposed to solve all these problems for us. And it's supposedly so like seamless. And yet, like we have constant like outages with the internet or like we can't Google something and we're like spending, you know, 20 minutes trying to find the answer to something that we could have easily found <laughs> another way. The fact that I have all these wires everywhere in my room because I have to plug everything in. And it's, oh, yeah. it is, it's this ugly blight on a room and yet you don't think about it because it's like oh it's making my life more efficient but it's also like hideous and very inconvenient a lot of the times and I, I find that this movie was really ahead of its time in kind of predicting how much technology would sort of fuck up kind of the yes. aesthetic of our lives yes yeah. while yeah. while enmeshing itself even more deeply as it went along yes yeah. 
What I think about with the ducts, and I, the ducts are definitely present, and it opens the movie talking about them. And the scene that I feel like it's most present in is the restaurant they go to, where they're served the mush on a plate that's supposed to taste like whatever random thing, <laughs> you know, numero trois. Uh, so this restaurant is so well appointed and so well designed, and it's like beautiful ceramics everywhere and all sorts of stuff. And then there are these giant ducts that are going <laughs> through the place, and the ducts are encrusted with jewels. And so in addition to like having this giant disgusting gray thing going through there they're going to decorate it a little bit they're going to make it look a little bit nice and more well appointed than your average duct but they still have to have these ducts in there and what i think is you know probably in some deeper layer of this movie the duct business somehow got in with central services and they are government subsidized and every business has to buy ducts doesn't matter what you're doing doesn't matter if you need them for anything you just need ducts oh no that's the thing i assume that literally every product discussed or mentioned in every service and everything is all part of central services i would Mm -hmm. guess that's just like a subdivision of it right the movie seems to be concentrating a bit more on like Margaret Thatcher and like the UK side of the early 80s politically where like the National Health Service she was like trying to privatize and like mm-hmm. busting unions and stuff like that. It seemed more like everything still high, being highly centralized like you see in the movie mm-hmm. um, but kind of losing its grip on power and losing its actual control in reality. Right. It's this beautiful restaurant and yet the food looks atrocious. <laughs> like it looks <laughs> inedible. Like <laughs> Which should be the only thing in a restaurant that matters is the food, <laughs> right. and yet it's Especially the only thing here yeah. that does not matter, apparently. But it, it, similarly on this side of the pond, because with Reaganomics, by 1985, we had already seen the air traffic air controller, traffic controller strike. strike, I think yeah. it already happened by that point, and we had already seen a lot of the privatization of businesses that should not have been privatized. I yep. think you know the closing of mental hospitals had already occurred. So there was a lot that was already going on under the Reagan administration to really destroy the fabric of what American-run entities were supposed to be, government entities that were suddenly being privatized. Totally. Also, even the ones that stayed government-run were so heavily defunded that the DMV became what it is today, Mm -hmm. which I think, you know, the mess that she has of running back and forth and, you know, is this stamped? Is this the correct form? Are you at the right place? Is hugely exemplified with something like the DMV or going to Social Security and... You know, the the Reagan era defunded all of those to such a degree that they are the nightmare they are today. Well, and that was part of the whole ideological experiment of it, is that you make the affirmative ideological argument that government is the problem, and then you set about arranging a government that cannot function properly for anyone who isn't rich. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. If you uh, make the government inefficient, you make the government not function, then by that very nature, the average person is going to see, well, the government's terrible. I'm going to vote for the party that wants less government. So do we have any final thoughts about Brazil before we move on to our next dystopia? I just like that this movie ends the way that it does, and it really brings it all together. In fact, when I first watched this movie, it was one of those movies that I didn't know if I liked it until it the very, very end, and then kind of it all comes together with the song Brazil playing at the end and you realize that he's just kind of completely disappeared into a fantasy and it just hit me. I was like, oh, I love that. So the fact that that might not be the ending of this movie is bonkers (laughs) because obviously that's the entire point. But just the fact that in this world and I guess in general is like the only place that you have 
to retreat to is really your own mind and your own fantasies. He's really the only kind of decent person left in his society. Everyone else is either shallow or corrupt, and he's kind of the only person in this bureaucracy who actually gives a shit about anyone and envisions himself as this angel character when really he's just like a decent guy, but the only decent guy that we meet in this movie, other than, you know, sort of the underclass people. And the only way he can preserve that is to just get a lobotomy, basically, and disappear into fantasy. I I found that quite striking and for as kind of silly as this movie is, just very sobering in a way as well. Yeah, I that, that was so well put cuz like I just really feel like that ending to the movie puts such a cap on everything else and does such a uh does so much work just in and of itself that ending to put a darker an even darker edge onto all the comedy, to put an even darker edge on all the satire of it. Um much like how when kind of it's it's when he's like taken in by the government you finally get a scene where he's being held in the interrogation room and there's just this silhouette in the background of someone hanging and just swinging from a rope elsewhere in this office and it's like it it as on the nose about a lot of the torture and stuff that the movie is i just think the ending kind of caps it off so yeah, watch Brazil if you haven't yet, because <laughs> it's great. Yeah, I, the, the only thing I would kind of add and a little bit of response to what you were saying is that I think that while, yes, this guy is valorizing himself in his fantasy, and I love the, the way in which it does take you to the point of we lose the narrative thread ourselves as we're following his fantasy before it's revealed that he's actually gone crazy. But he has built himself up to be this guy who is so important that the one actual terrorist he's met is going to compromise everything to come in and save his life. That this woman who he had kind of stalked and tormented is just waiting for an opportunity to run away with him and live happily off in the country and forget about the rest of the world. And he, until he finds out she's connected, doesn't really have any compassion for Buttle. He's, he says, when he first finds out about it, it wasn't our mistake. Phew. It was somebody else's. Oh, now we have to deal with the refund. So, okay, well, here's a, here's a way for us to get around it. And it's not until she's connected to it that he has any interest in this case at all. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, he's, I think, fundamentally a good person, but also a coward. Yeah. <laughs> and ultimately, like, does not really stand up against anything. And kind of... No. I think if he were a character more like Robert De Niro, the kind of fantasy version that he has of him coming in at the end is, like, maybe things would change, but... Right, it's like a rescuing renegade or something like yeah, that. Yeah, in the end, he has failed to change anything, like, and basically chooses to be happy in his own mind and kind of live in literal blissful ignorance rather than actually like continue fighting speaking of blissful ignorance (laughs) and continued fighting (laughs) (laughs) very continued fighting (laughs) we had entirely too much of a good time talking with travis about movies about bad times so when we were young is making this our very first two-part double episode just a few days from now we'll release our next episode about 80s dystopias following this discussion of brazil with the rowdy Roddy Piper starring cult classic John Carpenter's They Live. And we'll also be discussing many of the other touchstones of the genre, like Paul Verhoeven's Robocop and David Cronenberg's Videodrome. The When We Were Young podcast is a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California. 
If you've enjoyed us, please subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a review of five stars or more. You can follow us on any of the social medias to get in touch with us or suggest future episodes. This is Seth on behalf of Chris and Travis Duclo saying we hope you kept the receipt for your husband and the receipt for your receipt.